Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. Today I'm joined by Professor Simon Corbury, Chair of the History Department at Iowa State University and the award-winning author of several books, including A History of the Railroad in Illinois, A History of British Friendly Societies, and a biography of Mary Harris Jones, better known as Mother Jones. Now, while I could talk with Simon about railroads and fraternal orders all day, the life of Mother Jones has special relevance to our world. Mother Jones was a labor activist. She's probably best known as a supporter of the coal miners, but really she was a friend to all workers. She was once called the most dangerous woman in America because she could visit a coal mine and stiffen the resolve of striking laborers. She became an iconic figure of the movement in part because she looked the part. She was an old, dear grandmother that had white hair and stood out from her dark, outdated morning dresses that were dashed with white lace. When Mother Jones came to town, business owners took note. Now, we've seen today an increase in union activity after a very long decline, and the Gilded Age and Progressive Era remains the high watermark of organized labor. It also is the high watermark for organized counter-revolutionaries, as we heard in the last episode with Chad Pearson. And if you haven't listened to that, please take these two episodes as halves of the same walnut. But back to the present. As we've seen renewed union activism around the world today, we've also seen new celebrity union leaders. Chris Smalls is a good example. He's the founder of the Amazon Labor Union and one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 2022. Starbucks has also seen similar organizing and organizers, and of course the railroads have seen a major development. Uh, that's a long-standing union, but there's been major developments with the railroads this year. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mick Lynch here, the head of the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers in the UK. Mick Lynch's quick wit on television uh, has boosted support for the ongoing strikes in the UK, which now look a lot more like a general strike with nurses and teachers, junior doctors, lawyers, and rail workers taking industrial action. So we're in a period of renewed strife between capital and labor. What better time to talk about Mother Jones with Professor Corbury? 
Thanks for joining the show, Simon. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. It's great to have you, uh, not least because Mother Jones is a huge icon from where I'm speaking to you now from. Um, and I think you could probably imagine I was going to start with this. But for anyone that knows me, they know that I married a Cork woman for, for my sins. And uh, Cork is the second city of Ireland. And well, I should say that Corkonians call it the real capital, not Dublin. Cork is the real capital. And I did my PhD at uh, University College Cork some years ago. The city is a huge part of my life. Cork people are immensely proud of their city. And one of the people they are most proud of probably is Mother Jones because she hails from there. So I wanted to ask you, what influence do you think Cork had on Mother Jones? Cork had an immeasurable influence on Mother Jones. She was born in or possibly just outside the city. Her father was perhaps a farmer or more likely a, an industrial worker in the city of Cork. And that Irish heritage, and in particular, what she claimed to be the revolutionary heritage of the United Irishman of Cork ran with her throughout her life. It was something that stayed with her. And you're right, Cork is still proud of her today. There's still an annual Mother Jones Festival, the Spirit of Mother Jones Festival in Cork. They still celebrate her in the Shandon. They still celebrate her um, every year. And it's quite an incredible legacy. She, uh, I mean, I probably should have started with who is Mother Jones, but I mean, for everyone from Cork that's listening, I wanted to do them the service of starting with Cork, but maybe you'll do us uh, uh, the honor of just, because you've written a biography of Mother Jones, obviously, but if you were going to sum up who she was in a few words, how would you do that? Mother Jones, I would say, is an American labor leader who was essentially a self-made woman, or at least to use the kind of the Renaissance phrase, a self-fashioned woman, someone who made an identity for herself at the age of about 60 after a previous lifetime of travel and tragedy. She is an icon in the American labor movement. She is in the AFL Hall of Fame in Washington, DC, and she is someone who has continued to reverberate, not least through a magazine, an investigative magazine, named in her honor, published monthly in the United States. Yeah, I suppose that's what some people will immediately think of is the Mother Jones magazine. Um, I naturally think of the Irishness. Um, I wonder about the sources too, because you sort of alluded to it in your description of her, was that she's a, not that she's a caricature, but she is somewhat mythical in a way. I mean, she was mythical in her time, but uh, she has this sort of make-believe story. I mean, she's not all that she seems. Even her Irishness, she talks about it, and then other times she disregards that as part of her past. So tell us a little bit about her, her upbringing. I mean, her, her real name is Mary Harris. Who is she before she's an activist? Before she's an activist, she, again, carries many burdens and wears many hats. She was one of the approximately, what, one million people who left Ireland as a consequence of the Irish potato famine in the middle of the 1840s, although she didn't leave until the early 1850s. Born in Cork, raised in Cork, she was one of those people whose lives were shattered when that fungus destroyed the Irish potato crop in 1845 and again in 1847. Her father and her eldest brother, both named Richard, left Ireland in 1847. They crossed the Atlantic Ocean. They made their way 
ultimately to Burlington, Vermont, where they found work as laborers on railroad and ended up going into Ontario. They made their way to Toronto, Canada, and they called for the rest of the family, the rest of the family being Mother Jones, her mother, and her four siblings. And they made their way across themselves, across the ocean to join the Harris men in Toronto, where they encountered everything you would expect, dislocation, disorientation, a need for acculturation, the kind of discrimination that we can only imagine today. They were Catholics in a majority Protestant place. They were Irish in a city that still proclaimed its Englishness. They were outcasts in a new world. And that, I think, helped to shape Mother Jones as a person and Mother Jones as, uh, as a figure. You're right, she's not a caricature. It's a persona. That's the word that the historian Elliot Gorn applies. And I think it's a good one. Elliot Gorn wrote a very fine biography of Mother Jones published in 2001. And that biography is as much a reflection on the nature and the making of history as it is on the life of Mother Jones. And he, he does a, a fantastic job of interrogating the sources. And yeah, those sources are extraordinarily suspect in part because most of what we know about her early life comes from her. And there's obviously an incredible split in the family at some way along the way because she rejects the Catholic Church as an institution, even though she's educated as a teacher, even though she does have in Monroe, Michigan, at least a year of working as a teacher in a Catholic school. One of her brothers became a bishop in Toronto. So there is a there is a somewhat bifurcated split in the family about the, their relationship to the church. That said, her Catholicism stays with her. And it's a huge part of who she becomes Mother Jones, because we could speculate the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's the mother of the laboring class. She becomes the mother to the, the mine workers, to the men who labor underground and risk their lives. And so, yeah, who is she? Ultimately, we know who she is with some certainty after about 1902. We really rely on her and not much else before then. And there's there's a little bit more to that too, right? Because she crosses the border at some stage. She leaves Canada and she she builds up her kind of adult life in Michigan, am I right? Well, she does travel to Michigan. She works in Monroe for a year or so. Then she goes to Chicago. She spends a couple of years in Chicago before moving down to Memphis, Tennessee during the Civil War. And in Memphis, she marries and she has a family. She has four children. She marries an iron worker who is a member of a labor union. And during a yellow fever in 1867, her husband and their four children die. And this becomes, a, yes, a source of tremendous grief. It also becomes one of those moments in the crucible of life that create who she is. She returns to Chicago. She works as a dressmaker. She tells us that she was in Chicago in 1871, in October of 1871, when the great Chicago fire broke out. And she was one of those people who huddled by Lake Michigan, escaping the flames that consumed the, the, the north and the west of the city and basically destroyed Chicago's downtown and much of its um, residential areas. She then, uh, after 1867, tells us that she travels and she travels to basically 
anywhere where there is some kind of labor dispute. And in the 1870s, a decade of inflammation between labor and capital, she is someone who, I suppose, appears everywhere. I mean, she, she becomes she becomes something like Forrest Gump appearing. She says she appears everywhere where there's a labor dispute, starting in as early as 1877, in the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. She tells us that she was in Chicago, that she traveled to Pittsburgh, that she counseled the workers in Pittsburgh. There was a huge strike in that city against the Pennsylvania Railroad. There was the National Guard were called in, the townspeople sided with the railroad workers, uh, millions of dollars worth of property was destroyed by fire of the railroad company, and she claims to have been there. She also claims to have been present in 1886 back in Chicago during the May Day strikes, and again during the Haymarket riot. She tells us that she counseled the anarchists, that she spoke to the anarchist leaders who were part of the Haymarket riot. And then in 1891, sorry, 1894, she was part of Cox's army, that great army of the unemployed, who marched on Washington DC demanding some kind of federal action at the height of this, this great depression to help them find work, to at the very least create public works. And this is the first time that she does appear in the historical record. There is a Mary Jones of Kansas City who leads one of the brigades of Cox's army out of Kansas City. They don't get very far outside like so many times the Leaders found themselves uh, being robbed by one of their members and the brigade turned back to Kansas City, but she does appear, or at least Mary Jones appears in the record. And that's where her reminiscences and historical documentation collide for the only the second time. The first time is her, her baptismal record in Cork. So she's, she's a, a traveler, a great wanderer. And as much as she may or may not have been at these various places, and it's highly unlikely that she was in Pittsburgh in 1877, if only because it was essentially a National Railroad strike and she was in Chicago and she couldn't have got there. And so it's also true that she makes her way into the labor movement in part by telling these stories. And, and she makes her name by, by explaining that she's always been part of the labor movement. And now starting in 1901 in Pennsylvania, she becomes an incredibly important part of the labor movement. So there's there's a bit of myth probably in there built into this, and, but the the trauma is so real. I mean, the loss of her entire family, and and then this relationship with the Catholic Church and Catholicism and faith. Um, what do you think her conversion moment is? If we can steal a term from the the, the church, what what do you think that moment is where she goes? The labor activism is what I need to do. It's my calling. It seems to be around 1899 when, for whatever reason, she winds up in Arnott, Pennsylvania. At the, and, and this is a, a strike, a miners' strike, the United Mine Workers of America, which had been founded just what six years before, launching a strike in the anthracite region of Pennsylvania. And she's there. And she appears to be, at that time, telling people that her name is Mother Jones. Um, she also then travels through the South after this strike where she at least was an observer, if not an organizer. She travels through um, Alabama and Tennessee and she works in a rope factory. She works in a, another textile factory 
And she later would claim that working with those children in those factories where they called her mother was the genesis of her deciding that that was the, the role that she would play. At first, a mother to child workers. She was, from then on, constantly opposed to child labor. That's one of the causes that she will champion for the rest of her life is opposition to child labor. And that seems to have been, for her, the moment at which she proclaims herself mother, and then she later on transfers that term to her work in the coal mines, not much later on, but she does then say that she was, um, what, the mother to the mine workers, she calls them her boys. Yeah, so the, I, I mean, there's, the, the interesting thing about this too is, is about her ideas about equity and fairness. Before I get to that, and that's something I really want to talk about, but you mentioned that she's traveling around the South. How is she, how does she afford this? I mean, does she, is she, does she have any wealth from her, her husband or a pension or something that might allow her to do this? As far as we know, she had no money at all. And I suspect what she did was something like a gig worker. She went from job to job. So she worked in the rope factory in order to earn money, in order to continue traveling. She worked in the textile factory to earn money in order to keep traveling. That simply seems to have been her modus operandus. I mean, this is a time when there is a great deal of movement in part because of the depression. It's a time when movement is fairly easy because the railroad network is, is across the country. And it's a time when, although it was probably somewhat odd to see a 60 year old woman fairly well dressed traveling around nonetheless she's grandmotherly she's no threat to anyone she could go anywhere she wanted it's almost certain that railroad conductors would have in some cases let her travel for free let her travel um you know at, at low cost what can you pay sort of thing so i think the travel thing is pretty easy to understand the lack of money is, is, is easy to understand. She claims to have owned a dressmaking business in Chicago that was destroyed by the fire. I'm not sure that she got anything from the Iron Workers Union. There's no evidence that she did, and she never claimed to have done so. So I think she was basically something of a wanderer who made her way from job to job, in part because she wanted to see the world. I mean, she went to a socialist community in Ruskin, Tennessee, in part because she happened to be walking near it, and in part because she was interested in what those communitarians were up to. Brilliant. I mean, it's a, it's again the the myth kind of grows larger. I know later on, of course, she'll be getting paid by the United Mine Workers or other unions. But to think that you know she starts out with this complete vocation and poverty really is is amazing. I do want to ask about her ideas about fairness and and equity and. I suppose one of the things I was, when I was rereading your biography, I was wondering, did those ideas come from her faith or did they come from some other innate idea of what fairness is? Her fairness was a humanness. She was very much someone who saw all people as equal. She, she says on several occasions about black workers that the only reason they're black is an accident of birth and we shouldn't hold that against them. In fact, they're just equal with the rest of us. They're fighting the same fights. She saw the world through a class lens rather than a race lens. And, and that comes probably from her religion because perhaps the most radical element of Christianity is the idea that all human beings 
have an eternal soul and at that most essential level, we're equal. Now, that said, she also picks up, and I, this again, I think comes from the Catholic Church, on a gendered notion of fairness. She is no suffragist. She does not believe in women's rights. She does not believe that women should even have the vote. She, despite herself, from the age of 60 until she dies, being someone who is alone, and wandering and working and organizing. Despite all of that, she firmly believes that women's place is in the home, that women's primary role is raising children and making the, the domestic sphere acceptable to the breadwinner. And that probably comes from her experience in Memphis, Tennessee, where she was the, the mother of the family, the, the hearth and the home were her areas. That, that was the sphere that she could control. That was the sphere where she had power. And in some respects, you could argue that she then extended that sort of like municipal housekeeping out into the world, that she made it clear that what she was doing was no different to what any other woman was doing. It's just that her home was you know, the entire mining regions of West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Colorado. Yeah, the maternal, the maternal aspect of the gender dynamics here is interesting because there's there's so many other female activists of the time that we you know that we know plenty about Florence Kelly and uh, Jane Addams they're not rare um, but Mother Jones plays this this role as a labor rights activist where not all female activists were playing that role I mean do you think her ideas about gender helped her did they did they you know inculcate a sort of sense of grandmotherly litness or motherliness among the mine workers? Yeah, definitely. Her ability to project this image of a grandmotherly Irish woman who is no threat to anyone, but who is willing to, number one, risk her life to go anywhere in the country to help miners and other workers. And number two, her ability to speak the language. I mean, her language was earthy. There's this, this constant shock on the part of journalists and, and her organizing was very carefully covered by journalists as well as by um, you know, agents of the state who are spying to see what she's up to and also agents of the mine operators themselves. Her language, her rhetoric is earthy and borders on incitement to violence, but that bordering part is very important. Nonetheless, when journalists meet her one-on-one -on -one when they interview her, and after about 1903 on, she's interviewed on a regular basis, they find her to be well-spoken, to be temperate, to be someone who clearly has an education, and, and this shock comes through in their article. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, it's interesting because they call her the most dangerous woman in America, but the persona is, I guess, designed to seem, well, disarming, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit. You mentioned already her advocacy for children. I think we have to talk about um, the March of the Mill children. How did Mother Jones change the conversation about child labor in the United States? In 1903, there was a strike in Kensington, Pennsylvania, which is a textile suburb of Philadelphia. Mother Jones, who liked to be in the center of the action, knew that was one of the leading uh, industrial disputes at the time. She makes her way to Kensington and she becomes friendly with, the, with, with both sides. She becomes friendly with the union organizers who are leading the strike and she becomes friendly with the journalists and the capitalists who are covering and afraid of the strike. So she gets to know everyone, which is, which is a big part of her persona. This, 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 you know, I'm this friendly, wonderful Irish woman What's not to love? And it works. It works brilliantly. She realizes that the huge problem in Kensington and in other textile mills is the use of children as young as five or six to operate the machinery. She decides that she's going to take a group of the mill children from Kensington to New York City. And the initial aim was to take them to a meeting of the socialists in New York, where she was going to help to raise funds for the strike. I mean, a big part of what she does is raise funds for other people. She does this consistently, and this is just one more example of that. The march gets, as you can imagine, an incredible amount of publicity. The newspapers cover it day by day. You can read daily coverage of the strike as the, as she and ultimately about 30 other people, children and adults, make their way from Philadelphia to New York City. About halfway there, she conceives of this idea of going to see President Theodore Roosevelt because she thinks that Roosevelt can instruct Congress to pass laws that will ban child labor. And she gets this idea because of the resolution of the 1902 anthracite strike. Roosevelt put together a commission, the commission helped to broker a deal, and the deal allowed the union members to enjoy higher wages and a little bit of job security. Okay, fair enough. So she tells the newspapers that she's gonna go and see the president. And, and she in fact writes to Roosevelt and says, I'm coming to see you. She gets a reply from his secretary, uh, B.F. Barnes, who writes back and says, sorry, the president will not be able to see you. He's at Sagamore Hill. 
he's simply unable to meet with anyone, you know, with everyone who wants to come and see him. He just doesn't have the time. Mother Jones being Mother Jones, she tells the newspapers that, you know, he's a coward, he's afraid of me, I'm going to come and see him. She gets on a train in New York City with three of the mill children. They make their way to Oyster Bay. They walk to Sagamore. They knock on the door and she's told that the president isn't home, which was actually true because the night before he had very sensibly taken uh, one of his sons and a friend out onto an overnight fishing expedition somewhere on Long Island. So he really was out of the out of out of the house. That was not a lie. And so she returns then to New York City and she spends most of the rest of her life excoriating Roosevelt as a coward because he wouldn't meet with her. And she feels that that's a missed opportunity. But what she has done is to raise the level of discourse about child labor. And while it's true that child labor is not going to be finally and uh, um, deliberately banned until the New Deal, nonetheless, it now becomes impossible not to think about children at work when you think about the fact that we have textile mills and other areas in the industry, in the economy that are, well, basically being staffed by kids. And Roosevelt never meets with her, right? Although there is a, an effort, and I, you wonder, is it sparked by Mother Jones to have this conference uh, on, on mothers and children in 1909, I think at the end of his, his presidency, but he never meets with her, right? No, he does not. He, he evades her effectively every time that she tries to, 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 to meet with him. And, and that's, it's unclear why that is. I guess part of it is she's a socialist and he is already castigated socialists as undesirable citizens. And so for her, for him to meet with it, this undesirable citizen might be seen as a PR disaster. Uh, it's, I wonder as well, how much of that is the fact that she, in her rhetoric at least, was so vitriolic that she used the kind of language that borders on endorsing violence, the kind of language that Roosevelt himself certainly would have found unacceptable. And, and that's probably part of it. it she, was, she was essentially just too extreme for him to meet with. And she had that effect on other people too. It wasn't just uh, the president who, you know, if you want to see Roosevelt as conservative, you might go, okay, well, he's not meeting with Mother Jones because she's quote unquote a radical. But, uh, but in the case of other people, even mine uh, workers and some of the union bosses, um, she found enemies among them, like John Mitchell, who was the head of the United Mine Workers. So is that the same reason? Is it because of her, her rhetoric or are there other reasons that make her a little bit uh, contentious and, and, and bring some friction even within the, the, the unions? She had a great deal of respect for John Mitchell in the early days of the anthracite strikes. In 1902, she calls Mitchell one of, the, one of the leading lights of the labor movement. And she meets him, she knows him, she corresponds with him, he sends her out to organize. But when that strike is settled, she sees this as a missed opportunity. She sees that, that Mitchell had essentially put the brakes on too soon and ended the strike without getting recognition for the union. And for her, that was a terrible mistake. Yes, you've got better wages. Yes, you've got this, this more stable climate 
of relations between the operators and the workers, but you don't have recognition for the United Mine Workers of America, which for her means at any moment, those gains can be turned back. And, and that's for that, that, that power relationship, that loss of potential always hurt her for Mitchell. And Mitchell, of course, because of his work with the National Civic Federation, because she saw he and Gompers as cozying up to the bosses, as being more interested in looking after themselves and their friends than in, this, in, in class warfare, which is what she wanted. That was a cause of tremendous sorrow for her and also generated a great deal of criticism from her for them. She, she saw them as, and especially John Lewis, we'll get to John Lewis perhaps in a minute, but she saw them as more interested in the bread and butter issues of business unionism than in the fighting class war of what she thought would be the only way to improve conditions for working people. Well, this seems uh, particularly timely. So we have a big union uh, struggle going on right now in the United States with the railroads. If anyone is tuning into what's going on in the United Kingdom, we're basically at a general strike situation where nurses, teachers, rail workers, even lawyers in, in, in some cases, junior lawyers are uh, going on strike. Um, one of the things that I read about in your book and, and also in the Gorn biography was about maybe about she was an absolutist in some regards that, you know, if you look at what Mitchell was trying to do was this sort of national national or nationwide picture about coal workers that, you know, if there were strikes in Pennsylvania, West Virginia would make up the difference, um, you know, that the operators could just mine more coal from West Virginia to make up for what was going on in Pennsylvania. Do you think that Mother Jones's approach was just simply so absolutist that she didn't see the national picture or that she understood the national picture, but disregarded it in her in her activism? You could say she didn't see the strategic picture. Her, her vision was national because she wanted to, to foment class war. She believed firmly the only way to improve life for workers was for an uprising of some sort. Now, whether that uprising would be violent or whether it would be peaceful through unions, she tended most of the time on the side of a peaceful union because she understood the incredible power that capital had at its disposal. The, the army, the legal system, the political system, all rigged against working people. If you try to take that head on through violence, you're going to lose. There's no way that working people could possibly hope to confront capital and defeat it violently. So she believed that withdrawing labor and then taking over the mines. She, at one level, thought the government should nationalize industry. She called for the nationalization of the mining industry, for the nationalization of the railroads. Not particularly uncommon at the time. And for her, that was the way to get real, lasting, revolutionary change. So yeah, like the UK today and like the US today, there are strategic strikes, there are strategic moments but for her, it was indeed an absolutist vision. Do we know if she read Das Kapital? Did she read Marx? Did she, I mean, she's she's not a socialist and we can talk about that maybe, you know, is she a socialist or what kind of socialist is she? Um, she doesn't agree with Debs on, on everything or she has a falling out. I mean, what, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, so she read a newspaper called The Appeal to Reason. The Appeal to Reason was published in Kansas 
And one of the contributors was a guy by the name of Ernest Untermann, and Untermann was a translator of Marx and Engels. Now, she didn't, as far as I know, read Marx directly, but she certainly read Marx as distilled through people like Untermann. So she was not unaware of the writings of Marx and Engels. She certainly talks about the labor theory of value. I mean, that's key to Das Kapital is the notion that the workers who produce wealth should have their share of that wealth, to put it simply. And for her, that was a key way to understand economic activity. The labor theory of value is, is repeated. That phrase, she uses that phrase every now and then as well in her speeches and in her letters. She is, is she a socialist? That's a, that's a tremendously complex question. The simple answer is yes, because she wanted class warfare. Yes, because she saw society in binary terms. And yes, because ultimately she believed there would be a society consisting of only one class, the working class, the proletariat essentially would win and the bourgeoisie would either join or be eliminated. That's the, the ultimate outcome. She does have all sorts of problems with the socialist party. She's a socialist organizer for a couple of years. She has a falling out with one of the leaders of the socialist party of America. And she, um, turns her back on formal organized socialism. She likes Debs, she knows Debs, she claims to have known Debs since the ARU strikes of 1894. He liked her, they were, they were regular correspondents. They fall out in 1916 when she doesn't support his candidacy for Congress from Terre Haute, Indiana. And she, for one, for one cycle, appears to be supporting the Democrats. She, for whatever reason, likes Wilson, in part because he appointed the founder of the United Mine Workers of America to be his um, uh, Secretary of Labor. So it's personal. For Mother Jones, so much of this is personal. And I think that that certainly hurt Debs, and it certainly hurt her relationship with Debs. And it's very, I mean, this kind of personal take on politics and on the world makes it very difficult to pin her down ideologically. Yeah, sure, at some moment she's a socialist, at others perhaps not. Ultimately what she wants is pretty clearly evident in the Communist Manifesto. So is she a communist? Well, hard to say, Mike. Yeah, I think your, your point though about the party and the personal aspect of it though does clarify things to a, a great extent. You know, she's, as you said, she distilled Marx if she didn't get it directly and she very much was a socialist with a small s at least anyway. Um, so, all right, we've mentioned Pennsylvania, the coal, coal fields there, anthracite. I've mentioned West Virginia fleetingly, but there's, uh, I suppose, there's a coal field that we need to talk about in Colorado. And that's really where, in some ways, she reaches the apex of her career, isn't it? It is. It is. It's also a huge missed opportunity in her eyes. 1914, 1913-14, the United Mine Workers of America launches a strike against Colorado Fuel and Iron, and I think four other major capitalist industries in Colorado. Colorado Fuel and Iron is controlled by John D. Rockefeller Jr. And she goes out there as an organizer for the United Mine Workers. Her flirtation with the Socialist Party is over, and she is hired again by the UMWA. Uh, and she makes her way out there, and she she, she, she tries to organize and the, the Colorado 
coal fields are divided into a northern field and a southern field. And the southern field is primarily made up of workers from southern Europe, and the northern field is primarily made up of workers from the British Isles. She goes to the southern field, she, she helps to organize the union in the southern field, there's a solid strike. The northern field looks like it's about to go back to work. So Mitchell sends her to the northern field. She goes to the northern field and she has an instant impact. This is one of the strengths, but also one of the weaknesses of Mother Jones. Her rhetoric, her presence, her notoriety, her persona are so powerful and so well known that the miners of the northern field agree to stay on strike. And this is something that the union doesn't necessarily want because they want to settle and then focus on the southern field. So she, she is very successful in the northern field. She returns to the southern field. The Mother Jones effect is instant, but also transitory. She finds that in the northern field, the organizers on the ground manage to convince the workers there to settle. And so for her, that's a, that's a terrible loss, a terrible opportunity gone. Meanwhile, there is uh, in Washington DC, an investigation of events in West Virginia where she had been arrested, imprisoned, court-martialed, put on a train and exported from the state. This congressional investigation calls for witnesses. And so naturally she makes her way to Washington, DC. While she's traveling to Washington, DC in April of 1914, at one of the tent colonies that the mine, the mine workers union has established outside of Ludlow, Colorado, there is a gunfight between striking miners and guards from the Baldwin Feltz Agency. The Baldwin Feltz Agency was like the Pinkertons, one of those private companies that became uh, essentially thugs for capital. And so they are paid to guard the mines, but they're also implicitly told to help end the, the strike. And so this firefight results in the, the miners, the male miners, leaving the Ludlow tent colony in an attempt to draw the Baldwin Feltz guards out, to take them away from the colony. They don't go. What they do is unimaginably horrible. They walk through the tent colony, setting fire to the tents. This is at a time when the women and children are mostly hidden in and underneath the tents. The fire rages, 20 or more people are burnt to death. Many others are badly injured. Mother Jones, to her intense sorrow, is on a train on her way to Washington DC while these events are unfolding. Needless to say, she gets to DC, she hears about them, she gets on a train and she immediately returns to Colorado. This was for her something that she claimed she could have helped avoid. She says that she would have allowed the miners to talk to the operators, that she would have been there to calm things down, that her presence would have forced the guards to set back. It didn't happen that way. So yeah, for her, the Colorado strike was both the apex of her fame, but also a moment of intense sorrow 
and missed opportunity. Yeah, we hear these stories about, we heard it uh, the last episode as well with Chad Pearson about the employers organizations and the law enforcement organizations and uh, the horror of it. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here after that, because um, we're, we're sort of dealing here now with Mother Jones's own sense of insecurity, I guess. And she's a, you know, as we've heard so far, she's a, she's a messianic person. You know, she sees people as being good or bad. And I wonder if we were to cast the same judgment on her, where would it settle? And perhaps, you know, you can answer this question by refuting the idea that we are these kind of monolithic creatures. Uh, but her militancy has always struck me as something that others share, regardless of a specific ideology. So uh, maybe that's a bundle of questions in one. But let's start off with, you know, how do we pass judgment on her? Her rhetoric was inflammatory, but she usually stopped short of the point of counseling violence. So while it would be easy to interpret if you're listening to her speak in the field as a call to arms, as a call to literally destroying capital, she would say, and she was mostly right, that she was merely reminding working men of their rights and of their need for solidarity. And that word solidarity is key to her lexicon. For her, uniting everyone together was crucial. She was always interested more in class. And she would, she would say, for example, in places like Idaho, okay, you've got the Western Federation of Mine of miners, but there's also the United Mine Workers, you guys should make peace and work together, as unrealistic as that is, given the conflicting aims and outlooks of the two unions. Nonetheless, that was her perspective. She talked constantly about the need for education. And, and she said in 1915, the fight can be won and will be won, but the struggle will be long and education, agitation, and class solidarity must all play a part. Education, the need to educate workers is one of the, the, the consistent themes of, of her rhetoric. She says later on, industrial, this is 1919 during the steel strike, industrial despotism will have to die and you, my boys, must use your brains. You must study and think. The sword will have to disappear and the pen will have to take its place. So, from my perspective, yeah, she's a contradictory figure. There's no doubt about it. She is really consistent in her rhetoric. She is really consistent in her agitation, except for this persistent theme of solidarity and her regular reminder of the rights of people, which include a right to education and the need to be educated. For her, understanding the system will help people overthrow it. I don't want to suggest that we should be monolithic about people's achievements or failures, but if we're going to look at Mother Jones and we're going to say that her objectives were basically to inculcate a sense of solidarity and to make sure that collective bargaining was something that was a, a normal process of American life and that education was going to be uh, you know, not just a normal part, but something that we all strive for. Does she succeed? On those terms? No, absolutely not. On the, on, and that indeed, I would say, are her terms. So you could argue that her life was a failure. On the other hand, 
perhaps it's a failure in part because the Mother Jones effect is, is so short-lived. That said, she uh, remains a source of inspiration. She was an inspiration to people at her time. The Mexican revolutionaries took her to Mexico City to help celebrate her role in the Mexican Revolution, which as minor as it was, nonetheless was there. And she was someone who people looked up to and someone who they could see, even if they didn't know her or had never heard her, as a guiding light, as a source of hope, even in the darkest moments of, of labor capital relationships in the United States. Tell us about the steel strike of 1919. 1919 steel strike was one of the many industrial stoppages that occurred in the wake of World War I as the troops returned from Europe, as industry was denationalized, and as capitalists took control again, workers wanted to hold on to the gains that they had made, including the recognition of their unions during the war. Mother Jones was dispatched to Pennsylvania, to Homestead, Pennsylvania, by the United Mine Workers and their still relatively new leader, John L. Lewis, in part because Lewis knew that Gary, Indiana, Northern Indiana and Southern Chicago were going to be the most important areas for the strike and he wanted her out of the way. In Homestead, however, Mother Jones being Mother Jones, she made some inflammatory speeches and she was arrested and she then left that area and traveled back to Gary, where she again made some speeches that didn't quite please the union leadership. The steel strike was very unpopular with the United Mine Workers, in part because it was led by William Z. Foster and other communists in the Steelworkers Union. And that meant that for Mother Jones, Again, there's this notion that union solidarity and unification is more important than the kind of personal and ideological splits that she saw dividing the working class. Also, in the 1919 steel strike, there was an organizer who was killed, a woman organizer by the name of Sellers was killed. And Mother Jones always regretted that she hadn't been that person, that she hadn't been the martyr who had lost her life in the cause of labor. And that was a huge regret for the rest of her life. This is kind of like a Pandora's box, uh, you know, ending to this in a sense, you know, you open the box and disease and pestilence fly out, but Mother Jones's hope is still there. Um, she started her activism late in life. How do the last years of her life play out? Yeah, so she was 62 when in 1899, when she really, as far as we can tell, actually enters the labor movement. And she's active until she's 89 years old in 1926. She suffers badly from rheumatism. Part of her, her career had involved making her way to places where corporations and the government didn't want her to go. And so in some cases, especially in West Virginia, the only way she could get there was to walk through streams and rivers. So that's not particularly good for anyone, let alone a, a septuagenarian. In 1926, she gives her final speech to dressmakers in Chicago. That's her final moment of organizing. It's kind of, the, it's kind of almost like, like, like a, a circling around to where she began. And then she 
never disappears from the scene, but she goes to live first of all with Terence Powderly and his wife, Emma, and then later on in Washington, outside Washington DC in Silver Spring, Maryland, she lives with some old friends from the labor movement, the Burgesses. But she's in constant contact with people like John Walker, who was the head of the Illinois Chicago, the um, Chicago Federation of Labor. And she's in constant contact with people that she knew throughout her career. And she doesn't go away. She writes to the newspapers, she meets Calvin Coolidge. She does all sorts of things to make sure she remains in the limelight. And she tells people that in 1930, on May the 1st, 1930, she's going to travel to Chicago to celebrate her centenary, even though actually she was born in, in uh, 1837. Nonetheless, in her own mind, she's gonna be hundred years old. Sadly, on May the 1st, she's unable to make her way to Chicago. So the labor movement comes to her at the Burgess's house outside DC, labor leaders and working people make a procession out to greet her, to wish her happy birthday. I mean, they go in waves all day long. She sits out on the lawn underneath an apple tree and she, she greets them, she meets them, she welcomes them, she shares stories with them. She even gives a brief radio speech and uh, she, at the end of her life, recognizes that she has been an icon. Her only real regret is that she wasn't killed in the line of action. Martyrdom was a constant theme in her, her, in, in, in her rhetoric. And she dies, what, six months, five months later in November. And she has a huge funeral in Mount Olive, Illinois, a funeral that's broadcast on WCFL, the radio station owned by the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Voice of Labor. She has this, this, this funeral oration and she's buried in the cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois, which was the only, and still is I believe, the only cemetery in the United States owned by a labor union. It had been established after the Verdon massacre in Illinois and when miners were killed, and so, yeah, she goes to rest with her boys, as she would put it. It's a lovely way to end it. In fact, I think your book starts off with the, the cemetery and the, you know, being owned by the, the, the unions. Um, she obviously has become a figure of her legacy looms. I mean, we've talked about the magazine. We talked about the annual festival in Cork. What other memorials to Mother Jones are, are out there? Or, or, you know, where does her, her legacy linger the most? It, it is a, it's the sort of legacy that appears at moments of crisis. I think this is a good time to remember Mother Jones. I think this is a moment when that desire for class solidarity, that desire to understand the system, that desire to make it clear that there are alternatives to capitalism. Capitalism is not a fixed horizon. Those moments, bring her back into, into our minds. Yes, yeah, sure, she's memorialized at the AFL-CIO headquarters in DC. Yeah, sure, she's memorialized at Mount Olive with a, a, a wonderful statue. Yeah, there's a Mother Jones Museum in Southern Illinois. Okay, those are fantastic. But labor remembers. Labor organizations have long memories and history is very important. And I wouldn't be surprised to hear labor leaders invoking Mother Jones. I think that's her legacy. Her legacy is that she is one of those, I hate to use this word, I'm going to, resources that you can draw on to make sense of the current situation and to offer potential paths forward. Maybe not a socialist path, 
maybe not a class solidarity path, but at the very least a path that, and that, that will empower people and that will remind us of the need for education and the, the very real fear that people have about the future and trying to reinstill some kind of optimism towards the future. Wow, it's a tall order. It's no wonder why uh, this biography is so important nowadays. So Mother Jones raising Cain and consciousness. Um, I think for me, the story of trauma and this sort of constant rebirth in a way is one that is incredible. And maybe that gives uh, hope and aspiration to people that are you know, in, in labor movements or just laborers, people that work. But, but also the average person, I imagine, will read this biography of Mother Jones and be, you know, be amazed at her resilience. And that really is probably the thing for me that I take away from it because the resilience of collective bargaining and collectivization in general, that's what you need. Um, and I think that's what she brought to many of her, her rallies. That's what comes out in your book anyway, Simon. I hope I've done that justice. Uh, thanks a million for joining me on the show. And um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mike. It's been great. I appreciate it a lot. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.